Good morning. It's Friday, the 9th of February, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj broadcasting from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes of the day the Reserve Bank of India holds interest rates again, but its body language is a little different. The Reserve Bank of India's messaging on Paytm and its many interpretations. India's oil consumption jumps 8% in January, even as Brent crude prices rise. Why the petrol pump attendant insists you note the zero setting and how analysts are backtracking from sell calls on Toyota Motor. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. The Reserve Bank of India holds interest rates. The Reserve Bank of India held interest rates and left them unchanged for the sixth consecutive time as it seemed to take a larger call on growth being strong enough to support the current levels of 6.5% being the repo or repurchase rate. The Reserve Bank has said the economy will grow at 7% in 24-25, that's the next financial year, and is also projecting consumer inflation at 4.5% next year. The current year's inflation is projected at 5.4%. Foreign exchange reserves, by the way, are at $622 billion. I will come to a broader take on the credit policy and what the body language reflects rather than the numbers themselves shortly. Meanwhile, the stock markets fell, most likely because they were expecting a rate cut since they swung after the announcements, or even if they were not, that was the trigger. The Sensex closed down 723 points at 71,428, while the Nifty 50 closed down 212 points at 21,717. Both indices were up about 0.2% before the Reserve Bank of India's rate announcements. Elsewhere in the region, China's consumer prices have fallen at their steepest pace in more than 14 years as it now grapples with persistent deflation. China is fighting a different problem of low confidence in the economy, low growth and low inflation. Most developed countries are fighting almost the opposite with higher inflation and thus are not cutting interest rates because they want to see it come down as the Federal Reserve in the United States has also hinted. India, too, is seemingly trying to bring down inflation similarly. A deflationary situation means that consumers can slow down buying or consuming, which can obviously have a cascading effect on production and the economy as a whole. Just to put things in context, China is grappling with problems that were triggered or accompanied its COVID curbs in late 2022, including, of course, that real estate meltdown that followed. Back home, the rupee is now holding just below 83 rupees to a dollar, closing at 82 rupees 96 paise after touching a low of 83 rupees against the dollar. Now, back to interest rates and the Reserve Bank of India's pronouncements yesterday. While interest rates have been unchanged, what was the subtext or the underlying message in the policy statements yesterday? To discuss that, I reached out to Aditi Nayat, Chief Economist of Ikra Ratings in New Delhi, and I began by asking her if she was seeing a shift in narratives. So, you know, in terms of a shift in narrative, for the last several quarters, we had tone coming through the RBI policy, the MPC policy statement and the governor's statement and the minutes that high inflation was really the primary concern. That was the reason that rates were increased and then they've been kept stable for a very long period of time. From the last policy onward, we've actually seen a distinct shift in terms of more focus on the fact that growth is very strong. Now we've seen that with the NSO's latest advanced estimates, which affect the growth in the current year at 7.3%. After that, the MPC has today pegged growth for next year at 7%, which is uh, broadly in line with what we've been uh, hearing from the government as well. 
So it's now this, you know, three years in a row of 7% plus growth, which is being highlighted. And that begs the question, why would we need rate cuts in a hurry anyways? Our view at ICRA is that rate cuts are not required right away. We do have lower growth forecasts than what the MPC and the NSO have indicated for FI24 and 25. The inflation does remain a concern the way that the governor has also highlighted today. There are existing concerns with food inflation being high, prices of the staples being sticky, food shocks that come up every now and then for perishables. And of course, right now we don't know what the monsoon outlook is going to be for next year. So there are lots of ifs and buts on the food inflation scenario. And we're in a world where geopolitical issues keep cropping up. And the impact that that eventually has on commodity prices, on demand, on uh, freight rates, uh, for example, with the latest Red Sea issue and the Suez Canal issue. You know, these are pieces that constantly keep muddying the inflation outlook. So it's very appropriate, as the MPC is saying, to remain very vigilant at this point in time. And therefore, with a combination of their expectation of high growth and their reiteration that we need to be cautious and vigilant on the inflation side, I think the signal that they're giving is that rate cards are not going to just come around in the next policy or they're going to be definitely more back-ended than that. I mean, in your own understanding and looking at history, perhaps, are we able to control inflation with interest rates? And is there a direct linkage or a more direct linkage than either today or in the past? See, the two main routes are the impact of higher rates on uh, the core side through what's happening with demand and then on the inflationary expectation side as well. And I think that is a very key component. And we do not want that inflationary expectations should start to get unhinged. Periods of low and stable inflation are necessary to create credibility for monetary policy and for inflation targeting. And the gains that we have made over the last, you know, several years with the inflation targeting, that shouldn't be put at risk with rate cuts which come too soon. In a very conceptual way, if interest rates were to go down, then obviously people would be incentivized to borrow more, which is individuals as well as companies and so on. We are supposed to be or talking about being at the beginning of CapEx cycle as well. So do you feel that in that sense, we're then holding things back a little bit by not reducing rates? See, the sense I have on the CapEx cycle is that there are many sectors in which CapEx has started off in a nascent fashion. But we are not hearing very big ticket or very big bang announcements in sectors other than, let's say, aviation, where, you know, huge deals get announced in terms of planes that have to be bought. Everywhere else where we are seeing announcements, they are more, they're smaller ticket, they're more realistic. And we feel that that is possibly what is going to be the case for at least a few more quarters. Now, there is visibility that rates are at their peak in terms of the repo rate and that a lot of transmission has happened but may not be fully complete. There is also visibility that the rate cut cycle will start in this calendar year. And when the cut cycle starts, it's not going to be huge. It's going to be shallow. So I don't think that that is something that will necessarily hold back private investment. If for that sector, the demand supply balance is favoring capacity expansion in the first place. Finally, is there anything that we should be now watching out for, which is, let's say, beyond one's control? Obviously, monsoons is one, but are there any other factors? Geopolitics, certainly. What happens with commodity prices and freight rates if Suez-Kandal issue is to continue for a longer period of time? Is there a risk of a greater 
conflict in the Middle East. I think there's lots of moving parts over there. And that certainly, you know, is not something that we can ignore completely. So were there to be an issue like that, Black Swan event like that, certainly it would have an impact both on commodity prices as well as on sentiment and demand. Aditi, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Elsewhere in the stock market, shares of ITC, the tobacco-to-consumer products giant, hit a eight-month low after its largest shareholder, British American Tobacco, said it could sell some of its stake in the company. BAT might do that, but reports of that happening, like Mark Twain's famous quote that reports of his death were highly exaggerated, have been around, and I can say for surety, for several decades now. I'm not saying that BAT will not sell, but those reports have been doing the round for at least 30 years, if not more. Anyway, one of the companies which owns the shares in ITC is called Rotman's International, which owns the Rotman's brand of cigarettes, which you may have heard of, even if you do not or did not smoke it. BAT's CEO, while announcing its latest results, said the company regularly reviews its stake in ITC. And like I said, it seems like they've been doing it for several decades. Oil prices rise again, even as India's fuel consumption jumps. India's fuel consumption rose 8.2% year-on-year in January, government data showed on Thursday, thanks to strong industrial activity, reported Reuters. India is the world's third-largest oil consumer and total consumption, a proxy for oil demand, totaled about 20 million tonnes in Jan, up from about 18.5 million tonnes a year earlier, according to data from the Petroleum Planning and Analysis Cell of the Oil Ministry. Yesterday, we quoted the International Energy Agency saying India is expected to be the largest driver of global oil demand growth between now and 2030, taking the lead from top importer China. Meanwhile, Bloomberg is reporting that a gauge of oil market volatility fell to its lowest level since October as crude prices struggled to break out of that $10 a barrel band they've traded so far this year. U.S. crude futures traded little changed near $74 on Thursday and have been generally range-bound since the start of January or for that matter much longer. So the good news is that volatility is reducing despite all the geopolitical and some economic bad news. Crude is up about 3% this year, and Brent crude right now is a little over $80 a barrel. Today's energy segment was supported by India Energy Week on in Goa right now. And for more details, log on to indiaenergyweek.com. Persistent non-compliance, the PTM story. If some of the commentators were to have it their way, the Reserve Bank of India should have as it pursued inquiries and investigations into a certain entity, kept them informed all through with regular mails, briefings and even maybe over tea and generous lunches over the last year, if not longer. The fact that the Reserve Bank announced it was asking Paytm to stop accepting deposits in its mobile wallets with perhaps a month's notice seemed not enough for many. Without getting into a debate on whether the time was enough, whether sufficient people were informed and if so, how they were informed, let me take you back to a little bit of history. Roughly 20 years ago, a governor of the Reserve Bank of India called a handful of journalists, including yours truly, for a closed-door meeting, purely background, to present his and the central bank's point of view on the seeming delay in a shotgun wedding or a marriage that happened between two banks. He brought our and my attention to the sudden move to force that certain private bank to merge with a public sector bank, who also got merged into a larger public sector bank later. Now, the larger bank, which is still around, is Punjab National Bank, if you really want to work backwards, but that's not so pertinent for our discussion today. 
The governor took some time to explain how the process worked primarily to address the allegation and question that the Reserve Bank of India had been sleeping while the bank in question's financials were going from bad to worse in previous years. Well, I still feel, looking back, that the Reserve Bank of India was not as prompt as they could or should have been, given that they were warning signals emanating much earlier. I did not disbelieve him on the exact sequence of events, at least in the final days. Apparently, the brass in the central bank was working literally day and night to procure documents, call in the bank's management, and then try and understand how bad the problem was, even as they took the call that the private bank, despite the massive mess it was in, had to be saved. The only way to do that was a merger. And then began the challenge to find a suitor. If I remember right, a host of banks were called up and detailed discussions were had, including right through one weekend to see which one would agree. As the governor described it, many of the private banks said no or begged off, and so did many of the public sector banks. The tone and response of each one may have differed, but the outcome was the same. Eventually, a suitor was found and the announcement was made. All this while, the Reserve Bank of India's biggest concern, as it usually is in such situations, was how to prevent a panic run on the bank's deposits and, of course, preserve the credibility and integrity of the entire banking system as a whole. Now, there have been actually several such situations in the Reserve Bank's history, including its recent history, and I'm sure they will be in the future as well. Such is the nature and fragility of the financial system. But a few things stood out from them. For one, the Reserve Bank of India, however it may word its releases, agonizes over its decisions for a long time before taking them and pronouncing them publicly. There is much discussion and debate up and down and several, I won't be surprised, sleepless nights as well because I've heard that from other people as well. Now, this has surely happened in some cases, if not all cases. The agonizing stems from Reserve Bank's biggest institutional fear, to go back to the point I made a little while ago, which is that what happens to a depositor's money and savings if something were to go wrong. Now, in the Paytm case, I'm reasonably sure, though I don't know for a fact, files would have gone up and down within the Reserve Bank as well as with the Ministry of Finance for weeks, if not months. Note how the Ministry of Finance deflected all questions back to the Reserve Bank when asked about Paytm, for the simple reason that the decision was taken and it was also clear who would be the owner of this. And of course, the RBI should be, being the banking regulator. Finally, the Reserve Bank as an institution has considerable teeth, more than many others, and there is a tendency, even amongst those inclined to fiddle with its operations, to leave it alone. There is also the other aspect that the Reserve Bank should be seen, even globally, by financial systems to be functioning, at least to a large extent, independently. Except perhaps there was that case of demonetization where the decision flow was evidently quite different. On Thursday, we were reminded of this process when the Reserve Bank of India said its action against Paytm was taken as a result of persistent non-compliance with regulations and that they took action after giving the company ample time to comply. The Reserve Bank last week, if you recall, ordered Paytm Payments Bank to stop accepting new deposits in its accounts or digital wallets from March, citing supervisory concerns and non-compliance with rules. The Reserve Bank of India, Governor Shaktikanta Das, said at a press conference yesterday, we give sufficient time to every regulated entity to comply with regulatory requirements. Deficiencies in compliance are discussed bilaterally and companies are nudged to take corrective action, he added. He also said that when such constructive engagement does not work or when the regulated entity does not take effective action, then the Reserve Bank of India goes in for imposing supervisory or business restrictions. He finally said that the Reserve Bank of India was a responsible regulator and would not have acted if all regulatory norms were complied with. The Reserve Bank of India found hundreds of thousands of accounts at Paytm Payments Bank and that were created without proper identification, Reuters reported on February 3rd. 
The Paytm Payments Bank is a regulated banking entity that accepts deposits for users to make transactions subsequently on an app. The app's real-time payment interface falls under Reserve Bank of India regulations, the business standard reported. Why the petrol pump attendant insists you look at the meter. Petrol is petrol, or diesel for that matter. Where you go and fill it and what you fill it in is more a matter of convenience and distance rather than anything else. And of course, the perception that the fuel is clean or not clean and not adulterated. Now, this used to be a bigger problem in the past, but my sense is it's not so much now and not without reason. I've also noticed another thing. Petrol pump attendants knock on the window of your car or nudge you if you are on a two-wheeler and insist you look at the zero setting on the pump gauge before starting to fill the fuel. I never thought much about this, except that how consistent it was in many of the pumps I've visited. It is not without reason. It is actually part of a larger marketing and distribution effort by companies like Bharat Petroleum to ensure greater consumer loyalty and, of course, comfort and finally return business. I had the opportunity to catch up with Krishna Kumar Gopalan, the Chairman and Managing Director of Bharat Petroleum in Mumbai, as part of our Energy Special Series for the Core Reports Weekend Edition. I asked him, a BPCL and marketing veteran, among other things, what made a BPCL petrol pump different from the rest? If you walk into any Bharat Petroleum pump, what stands out clearly is the distinct blue and yellow color logo. And you have the RVI visual manifestation, which is actually a wave, which actually denotes what a core purpose of innovation, reliability and caring is. That's the beginning when you enter the outlet. We call it outlet. The petrol station is what we call it outlet. And at the entrance of every outlet, there is a forecourt supervisor smilingly guiding to these filling points where you can fill. And one of the primary differentiators amongst the three oil companies way back in 1999, the environment was such that people did not trust the quality or quantity of the petrol which was being served or dispensed at these outlets. We took a very stated position way back in 99, and that was the evolution of our brand Pure for Sure, where he said, come to this outlet and we, at means we Bharat Petroleum, will certify that these pumps will deliver you quality and quantity. So we promised that not in all pump days, but in the early days then, we said this is a social movement where we are acknowledging, yes, we understand there is a problem and that you come to these outlets and we will guarantee you quality and quantity. That was a big game changer for us. The Pioche for sure actually became a social movement and then it became a given. You have no choice. Although the consumer expected that he be given, but those were the days and the environment. And then initially we started with manual inspection, tightening it. Over the years, we've done a series of technological upgradations. Now we can certainly say most of our, there'll be few ROs which are not yet technologically upgraded, are pure for sure. This is one thing. So we very clearly our promise areas are, or personalization, care, and uh, trustworthiness is offered at these. This is the value proposition which we are offering at the outlet. One of the new features which we have now introduced is, okay, let me start at the beginning. When you enter the pump, you are guaranteed the smiling, the uh, smiling uh, forecourt mm. supervisor takes you inside. And he starts with, he shows you the zero. That's one of the primary things to ensure that the quantity is being delivered as much as what you pay for. Once he does that, automatically the pump locks in and you will be delivered. And then there is a payment which is linked to it. So in the integra- payment is integrated to it. So that is one way of guaranteeing that you will get what you are dispensed for. Second, we have now introduced a newer technology, which we call it as UFIL2. 
in this the customer can decide how much he wants to pay how much he wants that quantity for it gets locked as soon as he does it the dispenser will dispense the fuel automatically so there is no manual intervention of somebody setting the pump and so apart from this when you go down the there is a air filling which you get there is a convenience store located in most of these station where you can pick up your in and which is called in and out which is you can do your normal cut last minute emergency purchase most of the couples they can pick up a ready to eat food they can pick up some essential for those eggs and breads and or morning when they come back they can do we can also in some places there are atms where they can withdraw money and so on and so forth so in the outlet when they buy fuel they have this one ufill which is already preloaded through a upi mechanism credit card payments are always available we have our own loyalty programs which was one petro bonus and now smart fleet for long the fleet customers these are mechanisms where you can pay and loyalty is rewarded so this is as far as the cities are concerned when you go down the highways we have lot of intermittent stations which we call it gar it's a home away from home where the drivers we believe every 250 kilometers they have a natural halting point at those location there are essential needs for a driver if you look at a driver a long distance driver is very very particular about his goods he carries because that is his what you call it the whole transaction is on the good so he doesn't like to leave the vehicle for a long time so normally there is a cooking space arranged for him he cooks there is a dormitory if required there is a toilet so these are facilities which we are providing on the highways which will now then be a stopping over point for these guys we understand that not everybody stops at the outlet so we have now spaced these pumps at different 250 kilometer intervals we have also upgraded the pumps in between so that there are other people can use facility which may not be of that standard so we have now providing a complete journey solutions across the highways with the introduction of evs we are also taking up highways where we are giving complete network of chargers where i can one of the key factors for anybody adapting to a ev vehicle is the range anxiety he wants to know if i take a vehicle will i be able to charge enough time so we have taken corridors we have built about 10 12 corridors across the country which is covers about a range of 300 400 kilometers and now we are spreading it across soon we will be about 7000 stations which will have ev chargers both city as well as in time to come it will be one of the largest networks which we will have which we station maybe we'll look at going outside the outlets as well but mostly we will be also looking at battery charging options swapping option these are things which were its work in progress Toyota's lesson on sticking to long-term vision. An interesting automotive tale. Analysts and auto industry observers have been generally piling on to Toyota, the world's largest auto major, for various reasons including its evident tardiness in switching to electric at least with the same aggression that other car majors were. Toyota has maintained that it would follow a slower pace in the switch and also put its weight behind hybrids, sales of which by the way are growing faster than electric cars in India. And now Toyota lost its last sell rating as analysts now continue to raise their price targets for Toyota Motor Corp according to Bloomberg. The automaker which saw its market value surpass 337 billion dollars this week now has no sell ratings after an upgrade from Macquarie Securities on Wednesday. A Macquarie analyst wrote in a note that we clearly have underestimated Toyota's strong cash generation capabilities. We also think its vertically integrated supply chain and agile production capabilities place the company in a sweet spot. Toyota shares rose more than 4% on Thursday have advanced almost 30% over the last year there are now 14 buys 10 holds and zero sells for the company
That's it for me for today. Have a great weekend. Do watch out for our core report weekend edition, this time in conversation with BPCL Chairman and Managing Director Krishna Kumar Gopalan. And see you next week. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopsis or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>